0: Hello, I'm Hattie Crissell, the Acting Features Director of Grazia Magazine, and this is Grazia Life Advice. Each week, I speak to women worth listening to, asking them to share six pieces of brilliant, invaluable advice, and the worst piece of advice they've ever received. My guest this week is the food writer Bee Wilson. I picked up Bee's last book, This Is Not a Diet Book, a year or so ago, and I found it completely fascinating. Full of common sense advice on listening to our appetites, nourishing our bodies and avoiding faddy regimes and short term eating patterns. I was thrilled when she agreed to join us and share some advice from her new book, The Way We Eat Now, which looks at how our diets have transformed beyond recognition in the space of a generation or two. From meat and two veg every mealtime, to everything from eating Mexican food in Manchester, to picking up a tube of Pringles in Peru or Thailand. Let me know what you think of this episode on Twitter or Instagram with the hashtag Grazia Life Advice. But for now, over to B. It's so lovely to have you here and I've been a big fan of your writing on food and nutrition for a long time. Um, What drew you into this as a subject area? I think with this book it
1: changed quite a bit from my initial concept I think I started off thinking I was going to be taking a sort of nosy look into what was in people's shopping baskets almost and I kept thinking about when you're in the supermarket and you see a list that somebody's left behind and you think what kind of person is buying dried apricots and kimchi and pulled pork and a bottle of pinot grigio well maybe (laughs) all of us in fact Um, but then when I began kind of beginning to research that I thought no there's a kind of bigger story here which is just the way we all eat which is this big mashup. it's such a contradiction like it's never been healthier on the one hand and it's never been unhealthier on the other hand and sometimes that's within an individual person's diet Mm. Um, and I just kind of wanted to go in search of some of the sort of truths and facts behind the assumptions we make Mm. about food yeah so it got it got bigger and then I was having to contract it down again because when you try to write a book about the way we all eat, um, all over the world as well, you haven't all over the world to the UK. Exactly. Or... I realised
0: it had to be a global story. The, we're so sort of inundated now with nutritional advice, um, and there are so many people out there in the media who are calling themselves nutritionists or nutritional mm. experts, um, and yet often giving quite contradictory mm. advice. And you've got the kind of um, Gwyneth Paltrow-esque type of thinkers and then you've got the kind of good old-fashioned common sense type nutritionists and you know and everything in between. So why is that and also where do you see yourself fitting into this in terms of what you believe about food? Like anyone I've, I have found it quite baffling and confusing
1: as well and I think what a lot of people don't realise is a lot of these messages are put out by different branches of the food industry in a covert way this has been exposed in the States by someone called Marion Nestle so you read this stuff saying meat is incredibly healthy and we should be having it all the time and that's put out by the meat industry and it's, oh dear it's, yes oh dear <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at I mean you're saying lots of people are unqualified nutritionists but even with qualified dietitians and nutritionists a lot of them have food industry funding behind them so it's really hard to know where to turn I think a bit of common sense is required but I also think we shouldn't beat ourselves up because uh, you take a phrase like everything in moderation yeah. which sounds still sounds wonderful I still think that's quite a good thing to live by everything in moderation including moderation like you should be allowed some feasts shouldn't you like I'm not going to do moderation on Christmas day thank you very much <laughs> um, but if you go into the average supermarket today if you were to eat a little bit of everything in that supermarket in moderation I think that's sort of where a lot of us have ended up well the supply of food itself is completely immoderate. It's sugary, it's oily, it's over-refined. You don't want to eat a bit of everything from every aisle. Right. You'd end up consuming huge numbers of soft drinks and salty snacks. Right. So everything in moderation actually now would involve refusing most of what's for sale as food, which right. is a really difficult thing to do. So I do think there has to be an element of saying no, which doesn't sit easily with any of us because none of us likes being told what to put in our mouths. It's a deeply personal thing. So I think there has to be some kind of contraction down and sort of shrinking back of what we eat. But at the same time, I don't think you want to go the full Gwyneth Paltrow route of saying Mm. the food has to be perfect. Mm. Because food is never perfect. It's messy. It's wonderful. It's joyous. It's there to give us pleasure. And it's definitely not there to give us guilt. Yeah. And there's far too much of judging ourselves and one another about food. Mm. The big thing I would like people to take from the book is to feel it's not us. We shouldn't say, oh, I'm so terrible. I just drank half a bottle of wine and ate half a packet of tortilla chips. These things are really pushed on us. Mm -hmm. And there are these messages also pushed on us, telling us, consume more, you know, Drink more alcohol and you'll have more friends and be more popular. Yeah. Um, eat more chocolate and you're going to be wearing an incredible silk negligee all of a sudden, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be really thin if you eat more chocolate because the people in the chocolate commercials are always super skinny. Yeah. And that's realistic,
0: isn't it? I mean, it's, just it's so interesting. I mean, it's you're you're opening our eyes to having been a little bit brainwashed almost by advertising and um, and, and yeah, the sort of um, surplus of food everywhere we look
1: I do think we're brainwashed and I think part of the problem is nobody likes to admit they've been brainwashed do they nobody likes to think that advertising works on them no but clearly it does otherwise the food companies wouldn't pay millions of pounds to do it
0: yeah well this is all fascinating we should move on to the advice and you've you've um, written some really great advice that's Drawn from, from your learnings from this book. Um, talk me through your first piece of advice.
1: My first piece of advice, which sounds a bit strange, is eat new food on old plates. Okay. Um but I sort of feel it's a way of living as much as anything. So old plates, what do I mean by that? And it's partly that our grandparents' dinner plates were smaller, significantly smaller. If you look at the average dinner plate, in the 1950s it had a diameter of around 25 centimeters mm-hmm. whereas now you go to a department store and a dinner plate is 28 centimeters now, that sounds like a small change i'm not brilliant on math people, <laughs> <laughs> people are the better than me at geometry that isn't just a change of a few centimeters the amount of food you can fit yeah the a- on area that is surface area is hugely more and i just started doing this myself at home my granny when she died um my grandfather was a china designer he used to make plates for wedgwood and so they got lots of wedgwood stuff that was cheap at discount when she died she left behind all these plates and the other people in the family didn't want it they said it looks a bit chintzy to us a bit old-fashioned yes and i'm like i love these plates and i used to have these plates that were probably fashionable in the 1990s um of these sort of huge white plates and they look quite stark and quite modern and I switched over from those to my granny's plates and suddenly I noticed that a portion of pasta or something that had looked Quite small on the giant white plate look really reasonable and kind of generous on my yeah. granny's plates, but it's it's a bit like us thinking advertising doesn't work on us. We kind of think, would I really be tricked by a plate? Mm. But most of us are. I I interviewed a woman for the book who's done research on wine glasses, and how the size of the average wine glass in the UK has changed. From They're huge now. Huge. Like the size of my head. They're like a them. bucket, <laughs> yeah. aren't they? So no wonder we're drinking the half a bottle of wine. It's not us. It's the glass. <laughs> And actually, this is one where there's big and then there's absolutely mammoth, isn't there? Like yeah. some of the glasses now are sort of 450 millilitres, yeah. which even if you're only filling
0: it half full. Well, it's over half a bottle of wine. You could get in a 450 Quite quickly, milliliter. half a bottle yeah. of
1: wine looks like one glass. So, so eating the new food on all plates, what I'm saying is... I don't think we should go back to the past. I don't think we have to go back to an era where women felt obliged to cook and they felt they should be making things like meatloaf and roast dinners the whole time. I think it's great that people are experimenting with vegetables and otolenghi kind of flavors and all these delicious nigella recipes that have changed my life and loads of other people's lives but i think you take this wonderful food and you put it on an old plate
0: yeah
1: and actually just eating on a plate at all sometimes seems quite radical like i'm not saying i manage to eat on a plate three times a day because you're out and about and you're rushing yeah but ceramic is just such a fantastic technology it's reusable when you're eating on a plate you're sitting down you're kind of nourishing yourself a bit
0: by the process of eating yeah you write a lot in the book about the fact that all of us around the world or many you know many of us around the world are eating actually quite similar diets now because there's this explosion of international food and I suppose food transportation is easier and growing things in unnatural habitats is easier because of technology but I mean I I don't think you're saying that it's just a completely positive thing I mean what what are the negative sides of that kind of homogenization of what we eat
1: so so one of the negative things is just we're eating so few foods and that really seems a waste because humans are omnivores we should be eating a massive variety of foods and there are indications for people from people that know about the gut microbiome that this is affecting us all the way down to the gut i mean if you look at the average diet across the world most of our calories are coming from just five or six basic food sources it's rice it's wheat it's sugar it's maize it's um, animal products and then it's soybeans and these basic ingredients just get shuffled up in a load of different ways but actually for human health you should be eating a much much more diverse diet than that and for the sake of the planet as well we know that biodiversity is a good thing and so there's something Wrong when I mean, one of the many things that staggered me when I was writing this book, I kind of knew that bananas were a thing. I mean, that everyone seems to have bananas in their kitchen, and they're always the same kind of bananas. And often, if you go to the gym or a coffee shop, a banana is the one healthy ish thing that you can buy, isn't it? It's yeah. the one thing that isn't maybe refined wheat and sugar. But I didn't realize that the banana is now the 10th most consumed food in the world, but also they're always the same banana. It's the Cavendish banana, which people who know about bananas say is a really bad banana. Doesn't taste really? that good. Doesn't have good flavour. Doesn't have very good texture. There are delicious bananas out there, apparently. I don't know
0: because I haven't been... So, so is this the one that's easiest to mass... To grow this a mass is scale? the one or? that's
1: easiest to mass produce. This is the one that suits the fruit industry to sell us. It doesn't suit us to eat it. But so much of our food is like that. We think we've got these real choices and we haven't. So, yeah, the, the homogenization thing, I think it's partly a, it's just a bit sad. We're kind of missing out on all those other amazing flavours and textures we could be experiencing if we're always eating the same dull banana. But also, yeah, we flourish best as humans when we eat many, many different kinds of foods.
0: Yeah. but the, But isn't that kind of what we're doing when we're saying, OK, I'm going to make a Sri Lankan dish tonight and I'm going to make a... you know American fried chicken this weekend or you know
1: I think there's been an explosion in flavours but if you look at those meals we're cooking it might have Sri Lankan flavours it might have Indian flavours it might be Italian it's probably chicken isn't it right it's probably the same white chicken underneath and most of this chicken is produced in really unhappy circumstances yeah oh
0: quite depressing I know it's I'm not
1: (laughs) saying I never eat chicken I'm saying you know enjoy the chicken just like you should enjoy the chocolate it's just if you get a chance to eat something different try and take it and expand try and expand yeah like at the level of the raw ingredients like if any time you're eating something that's not one of those top five things you're winning you've suddenly branched out
0: okay (laughs) (laughs) um your second piece of advice is lovely tell me this one
1: my second piece of advice is use your senses, wake up and smell the coffee and the mint leaves and the cinnamon stick. <laughs> um, I just think so many of us, we're kind of disconnected from our own senses now. We're rushing around, like you've said. We feel too busy to eat, too busy to cook. And we almost forget that simple joy you can get from... I mean, I sometimes do this if I'm feeling a bit low and depressed and I just go and find a mint leaf and just tear it and just kind of inhale mm. deeply and you straight away feel wonderful. Yeah. Um, and when I say use your senses, I also feel, like I've said, I do feel we're bamboozled by food packaging. Like people used to say the way to eat healthily is to read the label really carefully. But if the label is plastered with a load of lies, yeah. how does that really help you? And we almost don't trust ourselves anymore to judge what's food and what isn't food. But we've got these amazing things, senses, um, which tell you what's good to eat. And I've been involved in this organisation called Taste Dead, where you just get kids to use their own senses to learn about food. And some of them might have never actually felt an onion before. They've mm. never touched an onion. Never mind they've never chopped an onion, you know. Yeah. it's not surprising that a five-year-old child hasn't chopped an onion I wouldn't really expect that but they've never seen or felt the papery skin of an onion yeah. in their hand and I just think it's those basic kind of visceral things of
0: reconnecting yourself with your senses mm. that's just it makes you feel better and it's so enticing all of that I think if you can get a child interested in an onion you know that could be the start of a real love of cooking I mean that's the idea I mean
1: the idea of taste ed is it's more carrot less stick and we have found if you just allow people children to play with food Then suddenly they get to know it a bit. And then even though they might have begun the session saying, I hate tomatoes, we say, I don't mind if you hate them. It's fine. You you don't have to try. You don't have to like. Just explore it. You can sniff it and put it back down. You can just stroke it a little bit. (laughs) Treat it like a pet. And then you find them, they do the cutest things, these... um, four and five year olds when I was doing a tomato session with some of them and they would do things like picking up two cherry tomatoes and saying it's a snowman look <laughs> so sweet <laughs> and you think yes just just get to know the food
0: a bit yeah, outside of it. the plastic packaging yeah all right well your third piece of advice is about meal planning tell me what this is so spend less of
1: your headspace on snacks and more on planning delicious meals we kind of obsess about snacks, we spend a fortune on them. The fact that we'll spend one pound fifty on a single protein bar yeah. seems to me to be lunacy. And then we say we don't have time to cook. Right. Um, some days we don't have time to cook. I'm not saying it's easy to cook at the end of a stressful day and a stressful commute. But I feel like happiness with eating would involve spending a little less time obsessing about that post gym snack, which doesn't really matter. Or maybe you don't need a snack at all. But again they've been sold to us as this amazing life-changing thing but usually if you're thinking I I wrote this in a previous book but if you're kind of thinking should I have this snack or that snack which is the perfect healthy snack sadly the answer is probably neither
0: (laughs) it's probably
1: get a little bit more hungry and then really enjoy your dinner I'm not saying I always follow that advice myself by any means (laughs) but I do feel there's something about anticipating meals Mm. that we enjoy more if we're not kind of constantly topping up. I mean, I, I started to think of snacks as interruptions of the day, in a way, rather than something that's fulfilling and delicious. And then when you start to think of them as that, you think, oh, I don't want to interrupt myself with yet another snack.
0: I know, speaking for myself, I get really, really hungry, especially sort of late afternoon, and I'm still realistically maybe three hours away from being able to sit down and have an evening meal so is the answer that we need to think more about having a really filling lunch or you know I'm, I'm not saying everyone should eat three meals a day you might be somebody that needs five meals a day
1: I'm saying maybe call it a meal maybe at, if you're getting hungry every day at four o'clock your body's probably telling you something that maybe you need to eat every day at four o'clock okay but you take it a bit more seriously and take it a bit more seriously. I mean, maybe you are just eating a piece of fruit on the run or maybe you're hungrier and you actually need a bowl of soup at four o'clock every day. I mean, the hassle is then how do you arrive at work with a thermos of soup (laughs) (laughs) it's going to stay hot till four o'clock? Maybe that's a completely unrealistic piece of advice. I mean, I think this is partly why we love things like avocado toast so much, isn't it? Or at least when we're making it for ourselves rather than in a cafe because it's just one of those things where you can make it and it feels filling and delicious and Mm. quite vibrant all at the same time yeah
0: um your fourth piece of advice don't drink anything like water unless it is water yes
1: (laughs) so one of the things that surprised me well it it didn't surprise me that we're drinking a huge number of calorific beverages I mean you could just look around you and see that
0: yeah everyone's holding a coffee and
1: everyone's holding a coffee including me i'm very very addicted to coffee um everyone's if they're not drinking a sugary fizzy drink they're drinking a sort of craft soda or they're drinking coconut water or a smoothie or a huge latte which when you see them actually making it in the coffee shop and you see them pouring the espresso is it is a gigantic vat of milk into which a tiny quantity of coffee has been poured isn't it yeah um I'm not saying there's anything wrong with any of that. I think a world that contains red wine and cappuccino is probably unrealistic to say never drink anything that has calories in it. I certainly don't follow that advice myself. But what I discovered, which I hadn't realised before, is that the makeup of the human body is such that we don't get full from liquids. There are exceptions, like soup can be very filling... And it's partly because it's thicker, and it's partly because we tell ourselves it's filling. Right. Those drinks like Soylent or Huel, which are meal replacements, again, they're really, really thick, so Mm. they can be filling. But generally, it was a kind of survival mechanism in our hunter-gatherer days, that if you'd got too full up from liquids, then you wouldn't have had the motivation to go out to hunt and gather, when I read that I thought oh that makes total sense because that explains why I can drink two large glasses of Chardonnay which have X number of calories and then I just have a full dinner and I, that yeah. definitely ha- I haven't seen that in any way as being food for my body no so all I'm saying is don't drink anything like like water unless it's water well, you mean don't check it back all day so. I mean <laughs> yeah. enjoy it notice it I think it's like the use your senses thing pay attention note, like think oh I'm really going to relish this cappuccino because maybe this cappuccino is my snack. I mean, I've got to that point. It's partly, this is my issue. Maybe the next thing I need to work on is caffeine, but I can't imagine ever giving up caffeine (laughs) for as long as I work anyway, when I'm on deadline especially. But I feel something like a flat white is the most delicious, wonderful, beautiful treat. But if you're someone like me that sometimes is drinking four cups of coffee a day, I don't need, well, I also probably couldn't afford to buy four flat whites <laughs> yeah um so i kind of switch between i think just tea is a fantastic drink I and mean, tea is effectively water isn't
0: it if you don't water, put milk in it
1: if you don't put milk in it but even if you do put milk in it it's a splash isn't it there's a huge difference between a mug of even milky tea and a ginormous yeah. venti Latte. cappuccino with flavored syrups in and absolutely yeah and it's, it's the size as much as anything else. If you go to Italy, there was a completely standardised portion for a cappuccino. It was always, I think it's sort of about 80 mils of milk, or it might be more, give or take. Whereas that wouldn't even be small in no. Starbucks. That would be minuscule. That would be microscopic. Yeah. And yet that, the first few times I was drinking cappuccino in my life, which probably was in Italy, that seemed like an amazing treat. Yeah, and now our whole expectations have been inflated. Yeah. So I'm just saying, I'm just saying, water's really good if you're thirsty, and then these other things are probably for other purposes. And a lot of the sugary ones, or indeed the sweetener ones, I think you do have to ask yourself: Do you really need that at all? And I think the answer, probably, it's easier said than done, but is unsweetening your palate if you yeah. can. Like people who give up sugar in their tea. They all describe the same process, don't they? That to start with, it's like, oh, this is disgusting. I can't drink this. And then after a couple of weeks, you can't imagine the sugary tea.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we do adjust, don't we? And actually that ties in with your next piece of advice. Um, tell me this one. The next
1: piece of advice, which I thoroughly believe to my core, is know that you can change your appetites at any age. It's easier to learn new tastes than it is to force yourself to eat what you don't like. Mm. And I think this is where so many diets go wrong. I think it's where public health advice goes wrong. The government keeps thinking it's going to fix things by saying, eat five a day. The more we hear it, the less we want to do it. Nobody wants to be told what to eat.
0: And very few people are eating five a day, am I right? Very, very few
1: people. I think it's something like 17% of British children eat five a day. And then if you look at the top sources of vegetables in a British child's diet it will be like baked beans is very high up there and pizza is another major source of vegetables. (laughs) (laughs) So they're even scraping the barrel in terms of what vegetables are. And then this view kind of gets around that children couldn't like vegetables. And again, it's kind of promoted by the food industry and you get these kids meals, which are worse quality than adult meals and are just chips and nuggets, basically. Mm. But again, what I've seen through doing this, these food lessons, taste Ed anyone can learn to like anything I mean within reason you know there are certain things I don't ever want to be forced to eat an undercooked soft-boiled egg right (laughs) I just don't want to I probably could learn to but I just that stringiness (laughs) no way like everyone's allowed not to like some stuff yeah that if you're saying like I met this boy when I was doing taste ed who said I brought peaches into the class and we were just touching the peaches, just feeling the fuzz. And he said, oh, I've never had a peach before. I've had peach flavored medicine. Oh. I know. Medicine. I just thought oh. And I thought, so many of us are in that situation. Like, how do you know if you like a peach if you've never had one? Yeah. You can't possibly know. It's just alien. It's just. So I feel lots of us, when we're older, are still in this situation, we think. We keep forcing ourselves to go on diets and then they fail because we think, I don't really like this new food. I want to go back to my old comfort food. But if your comforts can change, and I'm not saying all of them, you know, I still love chocolate. I still love, you know, I think it would be strange not to love chips. Um, It would be bizarre. Yes, it would be bizarre because they're (laughs) crispy and delicious and they satisfy some deep yearning. (laughs) But I genuinely, genuinely wouldn't want to eat chips every day because i wouldn't like the way it made me feel i just i i think it's possible to get to the point where you're actually craving something like a really flavorsome head of broccoli that's been kind of steamed and then doused in olive oil and garlic and chili and lemon and then put on a hot grill until it's all charred that to me is completely something to
0: crave yeah my mouth's actually watering Mm. as you describe that but how do we change our appetites
1: we change our appetites first of all by exposure so what I've seen with the kids is you just have to keep trying it it's harder as an adult I think because like with the kids we can do it in a classroom and they've got the power of positive peer pressure whereas as an adult it can be really difficult to do it by yourself. But one thing that works is flavour pairing. So let's say you're somebody that absolutely loves cheesy pasta and you think, I could never love butternut squash. You could just try putting a bit of butternut squash into your macaroni cheese. Yeah. And then you discover that wasn't so bad. So then you have it on the side and then you kind of build up gradually. Yeah. And with kids at home, I think there's just lots and lots of ways to do it. I with my youngest woman who was my really picky eater i would just um have a saucer of vegetables any vegetables that i would put and just sit him at the table while i was finishing cooking and i would try to act like i did not care at all if he ate these vegetables <laughs> which is the hardest thing because i'm kind of like, oh you're gonna have that leo go on go on but I just don't say anything just put it in front of them tell them they can use their fingers don't make a fuss about it and then They're hungry at that point. And if there's zero pressure, the odds are they will build up their repertoire of likes.
0: Your your final piece of good advice, find time for food. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean, so
1: it's really easy in the modern world to feel there is no time to eat properly, never mind to cook. But what I'm trying to say is if we never give food the time that it's due, we're sort of saying that our own nourishment doesn't really matter it's sort of like we're saying we don't matter in fact because being fed is quite a basic aspect of life so I'm not saying by any means that there is time for the average person to cook every meal never mind necessarily every day but there are these pockets of time I mean the weird thing when you look at time use data is we have more leisure time than people did a hundred years ago but it gets used up I mean I I'm the same on Spotify and Instagram and Twitter and online shopping and when I say find time for food I'm not saying there's always time I'm not saying it's easy for me and I think for lots of other people the time that's really hard to find is the shopping time yeah it's not actually the cooking if somebody hands you the ingredients and you know what you're going to cook it's a joy isn't it just being at a chopping board and inhaling those lovely or for most of us it can be a joy at least I I do have friends that just still say they can't stand cooking (laughs) but not everyone has to cook also I think one of the things we need to celebrate is people go on and on about the decline of cooking and what they usually mean is the decline of time women spend cooking but at the same time there's been a huge rise in the number of men cooking which is great which is fantastic yeah I think that's well, really really very, positive yeah
0: that's a very hopeful that's a very hopeful thing to uh, bring your good advice to a close so now on to the worst piece of advice you've ever received tell me about this yeah it was a close call when you're thinking about bad advice, <laughs> i've probably <laughs> been given some bad advice in
1: my time but back when i was 16 and deeply unhappy about my own body and endlessly yo-yo dieting there was another girl at school and she said i've got this amazing weight loss tip for you um, if you just have three full-size chocolate bars a day um, and some raw carrots, then you're still under a thousand calories. And it's just <laughs> and it, it sounds mad, but actually, it, it's kind of in keeping with the way that a lot of people think about food. Is it? it's completely mm. reductive this calories in, calories out idea that so long as you're sticking to a really low number of calories, it doesn't matter where those calories come from. Yeah. And she was like, "Oh, it's so great because you'll be eating under a thousand calories, but you'll still be getting chocolate." Uh-huh. And it's and it was so sad. What I don't know I look back at my 16 year old self and think oh why would I fall fallen for that why did you, would I did you try it I tried it, it but yes. it lasted well I'm going to say two or three days it probably yeah. lasted a day because Well, I'm, I managed the eating the chocolate part <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was fine I managed to eat a few raw carrots and then you were probably still but the really idea hungry that that would be satisfying and... the idea that that was offering my body in any way what it needed and I think that's why it's such bad advice we don't often with food actually think what do i need not yeah. just what do i think i should eat what do i think i'm allowed to eat you know, so many women feel that they're not entitled to eat a good hearty meal but they yeah. are that's that's what food is for it's there to feed us whatever our size we are entitled to eat so not just three chocolate bars a day and some carrots
0: <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much Bea. you've been fantastic it's a pleasure it's lovely to talk to you thanks so much to B Wilson and do buy her new book, The Way We Eat Now. If you like the Grazia Life Advice podcast, please help us out by subscribing, rating it, reviewing it or sharing it. See you next week for more advice from women worth listening to.